Meet today's momentum sister. She's a trailblazer, a pioneer, a Jewish mom, and she's making a difference for herself, her family, her community, and the world. Want to know how she does it? This is the Pashmina Podcast, and here is our host, Adrian Gold Davis. Good morning. I'm so delighted to be here with Kim Smiley, who is one of my muses, one of the women who inspires me. Now, you think you don't know her, but any of you who have seen me around the world wearing those exquisite lace and crystal cuffs, she is the designer of them. But she's not just a designer. What she is, is this Renaissance woman, this amalgamation of so many things, aesthetic, intellectual, social, cerebral, extraordinary. Kim, I am so happy to have you here and for you to share who you are, your heart, your soul, your energy, and your aspirations with all of your sisters. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. And I wish that this was not podcast and instead it was television because you look so gorgeous. I wish you could all see what she's wearing. She's got something in her hair, which I'll have to buy after this and her stunning cuffs, which now have pearls on them. But I am digressing. Kim Smiley went to Harvard University and studied poetry. Kim Smiley was raised by hippies, basically spent the third year of her life trekking and wandering through Asia. There's a picture of her standing in front of the Taj Mahal in diapers. Are you in diapers in that shot? No, I'm not. Of course, because you're a girl. You were trained before you were three, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, tell me what you were doing on that trip. What was the start of that? And what did that have to do with where you are today? Because... You have a, a genesis that's beyond almost anyone I've ever met. Tell me about you. So when I was three years old and my brothers were five and seven, my parents took us on a year-long trip throughout Asia. We actually started in Israel in a kibbutz where my dad worked in the fields and my mom was a hairdresser. And we, after that kibbutz, we, we basically, they bought a van and they took us on a year-long trip through eight countries in Asia starting in Turkey and then going east. You have an almost three-year-old son. Could you imagine going on a worldwide tour with your little Sam? It's funny that you mention that because we we would love to do that. That's kind of my dream to repeat the trip that my parents did. Really? So how did you stay entertained? What did they do with a little toddler? It's so interesting. I, I don't think they tried to entertain us. (laughs) <laughs> they they didn't. My parents are very unconventional, offbeat kind of people, very bohemian. Uh-huh. And they just they just traveled and they lived where the locals lived and they they didn't have an agenda. They didn't have an itinerary. It was just us on the open road basically exploring and having the adventure of a lifetime. It took a lot of courage for them to take that trip with such little so. kids. But do you have any conscious memory or just when you look at the pictures, you sort of have emotive sort of thoughts about it? Or do you remember anything? I do. I have a lot of memories from the trip. They're kind of like black and white reels from an old film. Uh-huh. I have a memory of standing in a field with my father coming towards me. My father drove a tractor on the kibbutz, uh-huh. and I have this memory of him coming towards me. My mother worked as a hairdresser, and I have a memory of watching her cut hair. I have a memory in Afghanistan of people coming towards our car 
and swarming our car really? because there were so few white people that were traveling in that time in Asia. And I remember, it's it's kind of an embarrassing memory given what I do now, but I remember holding up my little slipper and shooing people away with it. <laughs> given what you do now. Actually, you know what? That's a very good segue. That That's fascinating that you remember that. I wonder whether the shame or guilt, if you will, over that experience had you so deeply invested in changing the experience of immigrants here in Canada, for example, where where you live. Tell me about your business. Tell me about how you took a side hustle, because if I recall correctly, you spent over a decade working as a fundraiser for a Jewish organization, correct? Yes. I um, I came to Toronto, actually, to work at Habitat for Humanity, which is a Christian organization. Uh-huh. But my career in philanthropy started at the Holocaust Center and Museum in Montreal, where I learned everything about the nonprofit sector through building a Holocaust museum and a human rights museum there. Uh-huh. I did that after graduate school because I had always wanted to work in a museum. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got to help the viewers come around here or the listeners come around here. So now people know you as this extraordinary designer of beautiful jewelry, but it seems to me a Harvard-educated poet who has such a social conscience cannot just leave well enough alone and create aesthetics. So how did you manage to create something that could sit with the multiple layers of who you are and what you believe in? What it was super organic. It wasn't plotted or strategized. I I was a painter and an artist from a really early age. I was self-taught. My parents were both self-taught, very artistic people. And I was always encouraged from the earliest age to explore my creativity. And it's interesting. My parents are actually moving now, so they're sort of like excavating all the things in their house, and they they brought me all these boxes. There was about 15 boxes. Um, I, I keep everything. It's a bit of a problem. I'm a little <laughs> bit of a hoarder. Uh-huh. And um, I have all these things that I created when I was four years old, five years old, and I could, I could see sort of the seeds of what I do now planted from such an early age in terms of the things that I would create. I created this papier-mâché butterfly I created this little doll that I'm actually going to I'm going to create sort of a new incarnation of the doll that I created when I was 5 years old but I was always really into art and really into poetry and writing since I was really really young and my business happened really organically I was a mixed media painter from a pretty early age. And what does that mean? So I used found objects, different materials in my in my paintings. Anything I could find, anything that inspires me, I pick up all kinds of things. You know, one woman's a coal is another woman's diamond, right? Oh, so yeah. Matthew, my husband, sometimes thinks it's, it's funny the things that I pick up, but. These things ultimately are interwoven into my artwork. So I did a whole series of paintings when I worked at UJA Federation as a fundraiser in Toronto with photographs from the Ontario Jewish Archive. And there was this incredible photographer that uh, was a portrait photographer in the 1950s named Sylvia Schwartz in in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And she took these beautiful portraits of little kids and I did a series of paintings, I think it was around 2011 or 2012 integrating these portraits into a series of mixed media paintings. So I used the portraits as the centerpiece of the paintings. And then I incorporated branches and clocks and antique spoons and and vintage lace into these paintings. And I started incorporating more and more lace into my paintings. And a friend of mine, a dear, dear friend from Montreal since I was 12 years old, Brian Abrason, and his fiancée, Sue Gold, were getting married. And I asked them what they wanted as their gift. Uh-huh. And they said that they would be honored if I painted their ketubah. 
You've painted ketubas? I've painted a couple ketubas. There, that was my first one in 2012. And I, I painted a ketuba and I used a piece of lace, which was sort of overarching around the vows, basically, right. of, of the ketuba. I, I don't know if that's the correct way to put it, the vows. It's all good. Or the, all good. Okay. So, so basically, I used this piece of lace. And, and then one day, I literally had this epiphany. I was standing in my studio on King West. I wasn't married. I hadn't even met my husband at the time. And I had this loft on King West, and all my paintings were on the wall. For those of you who don't know, Toronto King West is uber trendy. Okay, go on. But I'm not an uber trendy person at all. At all. I'm I'm anti-trend, actually. And uh, anyways, I was looking at the paintings, and I thought, these paintings are too beautiful to be on a wall. They should be on a woman's body. And the next day, I had a meeting with a donor who owned a massive clothing empire uh-huh. with about a hundred different stores across North America. And before the meeting, I wasn't thinking strategically. I think it was Hashem that was guiding all of this. I just very quickly, literally in 10 minutes, fashioned a bracelet out of a piece of lace just to amuse myself. I wasn't planning to start a company. I was just having fun. That's for me, artwork was was a refuge. It was something I did as almost like a meditation. Sure. And I went to the meeting. It was at the Thompson Hotel which was across the street from where I lived. And I was sitting down with him and I was soliciting him for a major gift, right? And I was telling him about all the work that we were doing as UJ Federation in the community. And my portfolio focused on enriching the lives of vulnerable populations in the city. So immigrants, people struggling with addictions, uh, newcomers. And in the process of explaining, and I'm, I, the way I talk is with my hands, like you, Adrian. Like I'm very much talking with my mean? hands. What do you mean? I'm talking with my hands. Okay. <laughs> and so I was, I was talking and I was passionate and I was super passionate about what I was doing because we were really making an impact in Toronto with the work that UJ was doing. The bartender, I saw her in my peripheral vision coming over to me. And she said, you know, excuse me, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but do you mind if I ask you where you got your bracelet? Oh, come on. I swear. Oh, so, this is like Schwab's drugstore. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, and then she said, you know, do you mind if I try it on? And he was watching. I saw he sort of started smiling. And so I said, no, you know, not at all. So I, I it was very rudimentary, like sure. clumsily made. So I took it off and I said, you know, actually, I just made this last night. I was just like amusing myself. Uh, and she said, oh, like, do you think you can make one for me? Come on. And he was looking at me like, come on. Like, do you know this woman? And Did you set this up? Yeah. That's what he said to me because the, the thing that happened next seems like I totally staged it. So then she went away. I gave her my, my UJ business card. <laughs> and I said, oh, just, you know, send me an email and let's be in touch. I wasn't, oh, just again. Just for our listeners, UJA is the Canadian version of Federation. Right, exactly. Okay, go on. So basically after that, I, I started talking to him again. And then another woman came. And this is to ridiculous to invent, right? Another woman came over and said, hi, I couldn't help but notice that other woman was trying on your cuff. Like, do you mind if if I take a look at that? And he just leaned back in his chair at that point and had this huge smile on his face. And I let her try it on. And then she went away. And then he said, you know, that doesn't happen, right? And I said, what doesn't happen? He said, people don't come up to people like that and ask them to try on Well, I jewelry. beg to differ because I have never been able to get through a trip and keep the cuffs on my wrist. Not only do people want to buy them off my wrist, they want to buy them off my wrist with my energy in them, which is like so sweet considering, you know. I love that, actually. I know. I have one in Australia. I have one in South America that I wore for the whole nine days and that someone bought off me. So, yeah. 
I believe people want to bought them off through your wrist. But that's so interesting because a lot of my clients say the same thing. They say that the energy is so important to them. And and just and to answer your question before, they're not just cuffs. It's not just jewelry. It's it's about the spirit that is imbued within the jewelry. Okay, so let's talk about that because really for my purposes, what I want to understand is what is that spirit? What is the spirit behind the business model, which hires at-risk women, immigrants, people who, you know, need a leg up, pays them a living wage, gives back to charity? All of those things are fairly well known about your corporation. I want to understand what it is within you that drives that desire. Because there are many, many people who are creating add-on sort of charitable components to their businesses in order to create promotion around it. This does not seem to me to be your your particular thing. No, it wasn't. And and if I finish telling you that story, it'll it'll be instructive for explaining for how it. my business evolved. So he basically said, like, you have to become a designer. In the middle of my meeting about my job, and I said, that's absurd. Like, I've been working in 13 years. I'm a vice president of a huge charity. I've worked my butt off to get to this place in my career. And he said, I know, but you really need to do something with this. And I I sort of laughed and, and we parted ways. And I started thinking about it and I thought, could I actually be an artist for my livelihood? Like, is that even possible? Because it was something that I'd, had always been in my blood, but it's something I never thought I could actually make a living doing. Right. And my parents had always really ingrained in me that I had to always make my own income and I had to always be independent and not rely on a man. Uh-huh. And so... Career was very important to me. I also got married later in life, and so I had time to cultivate my career because I didn't have kids till I was older. I, I some a part of me didn't even think I'd be able to have kids because I waited so long to get married. And so, when this this man, his his name's Jeffrey Wartzman, when he told me you should be a jewelry designer. I laughed. I thought that was hilarious because my whole career had been dedicated to elevating vulnerable populations, and I thought that that was going to be my career for life. But then I started thinking about it, and I thought, what if I could weave together the things that I was most passionate about into my business model? So I thought, what if I employed underprivileged populations or or marginalized populations in order to make the jewelry. And those were the populations that I was working with through my job at UJA. Right. I was working with JVS Toronto, which is one of the largest employment agencies in Canada. And um, so I approached them and I said, I'm looking for some people who know how to sew. Um, I'm not a professional seamstress. I need to hire people who are professional seamstresses. And they were the first agency that helped me. With my uh, with my workforce, and then I thought, and then they lost you as their employee. I'm sure that went over big. <laughs> well, UJA ultimately did in 2015. I two years or three years after I launched my business, um, they, I did leave to start this 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 side hustle, as you called it, which is which um, which took a tremendous amount of. Um, cajoling and just like introspection. And it also took, if I'm going to be honest, it also took having a partner who was supportive of me because I'm not sure I would have had the courage to do it had I been a single woman. But by that point, I was married. I Matthew jokes that I, on our first date- Matthew's her husband. Matthew's my husband. Mm -hmm. On on our first date, he joked that I said, you know, I really- 
I'd really like to sort of be an entrepreneur. I said that on our first date, and um, so I talked about it from the beginning. I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur since I was really young. Uh-huh. And the the jewelry company, so it it, it basically it weaves together the things that I'm most passionate about. So it's it's employing women who are marginalized. So currently my company employs newcomers, mostly from Syria, uh-huh. because Syrian women are trained from a very early age by their mothers how to sew and how to make lace by hand. Uh-huh. And their, their artistic ability blows me away every day. It's very much a dialectic. It's not I'm the artist or the designer and they're the employees. It's not like that. It's, it's a give and take and it's a flow of creativity. And a lot of my designs are inspired by the ideas that the women that work with me have. And then the next point is that I don't sell the way traditional designers sell. My business model is really different. So the way that I started was that I would do trunk shows and I would select a charity. The charity would come in. They would talk about what their mission was, what their mandate was. I would talk about my philosophy of employing newcomers with a fair trade wage or a living wage. And then what I do is I give 20% of the gross to whatever charity that I'm partnered with at the trunk show. So selling into stores is not what I do. I've done it a couple times. But what I what really excites me is partnering with charities that have sort of like-minded visions of empowering marginalized populations and then giving money back. So when we talk about clients like feeling the energy that goes into the cuffs, it's kind of like this virtuous karmic cycle that I conceive of a design, the women that work with me are able to create the design through their incredible skills and their artisan abilities. Mm -hmm. And then I pay them a fair trade wage. We sell it and give 20% of the gross to a charity. And then the woman who wears it feels that karmic cycle that's kind of imbued into the jewelry through energy. Hold on a second. Are you telling me that you believe that an inanimate object can contain... The energy of the intent put into it? A thousand percent. Really? And did you always feel that? Yeah, I think that's just like a mystical ideology that's just as part of my personality that I've had from a really early age. I think think the divine imbues everything that's positive. Wow. So Kim, you mentioned that you didn't get married till later in your life. Is it rude of me to ask you how old you were? I met Matthew when I was 35. On our second date, I kind of recall this, but on our second date, I told him that I didn't want a long courtship. (laughs) And I think I sort of said that because I wanted to scare off men that weren't serious. Right. And it scared off a lot of guys, for sure, because I definitely dated a lot when I got to Toronto from from living abroad. And um, we dated for eight months. Uh And then he proposed. And we got married four days after I turned 37. And then did you actively start trying to make a family at that point? No, not actively. I I got pregnant really, really easily. Um, that was never my problem. My problem was, was keeping pregnancies. Um, so I got pregnant, I think, a few months after we were married. But that pregnancy didn't last, unfortunately. And then I, I started trying, I guess, actively probably uh, maybe six or seven months after we got married. So I wonder, I'm reading between the lines here, and please forgive me if I'm being too um, personal, 
But it strikes me that the empathy effect, which I want you to tell me about in a minute, your your project, introducing citizens of the world where empathetic behaviors shine out, must have been around that time when you were attempting to stay pregnant. Do you think that there's any correlation between the deepening of your empathy for the rest of the world and your own personal struggles and pain around that? I would say so, for sure. I started the empathy effect when I was deep in the throes of infertility. I I wouldn't even call it infertility because I was getting pregnant, but I wasn't able to maintain the pregnancies. And I think empathy actually saved my life. Okay, explain that to me. Well, I started the empathy effect in 2015. I got married in 2013, and I started in 2015. And I started it after I left my job at EJA Federation. And um, I started it basically as an experiment. And every experiment, as you know, has a hypothesis. Sure. My hypothesis was empathy is infectious. And I decided to choose a laboratory that was highly toxic for the experiment. (laughs) And I chose to do it on Facebook because... Highly toxic. Highly toxic. Tell me why. Trolling the politicization of posts. Mm -hmm. People I found can be, well, people are quite cruel on Facebook. It's also a place for a lot of beauty, but I found that people can be quite callous and cruel. And I think just social media in general can be quite a narcissistic, you know, environment. Mm -hmm. And so this was an antidote to that. It was an antidote to the narcissism and the negativity. And I chose to use Facebook as my laboratory, even though certain people told me that was a bad idea because it would not allow for as broad an audience as a WordPress post. A A WordPress kind of blog could be a little bit more shareable than Facebook because not everyone is on Facebook, actually. Really? I thought the entire world was on Facebook. Certainly middle-aged women. My children tell me all the time now that Facebook is the purview of women my age, that young people are only on Instagram. I actually love Instagram, but Instagram wasn't the right medium for sharing the message that I wanted to share. And what is the message? Just before we go any further, you know, Socrates says that the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. What is empathy? Empathy is standing in someone else's shoes. It's not sympathy. And I'm not the the expert on sympathy versus empathy. That's Brene Brown who's the expert on that. But empathy is literally standing in someone's shoes. It's not observing someone's pain from a distance. It's feeling someone's pain. It's, it's, It's feeling what someone else is feeling, right? Would you call yourself an empath? Yes, I would. And there's a lot of pain associated with being deeply empathetic. It cannot be simple to move through the world with your heart on your sleeve, with your nerve endings firing all the time around people. It's a blessing and a curse, being an empath. Talk to me about the curse piece. The curse is one needs to learn boundaries. And I think boundaries are very difficult for an empathetic person to learn. It's, It's the learned behavior to have boundaries. And I've only just begun learning about boundaries. What is an example of a boundaryless empathy? I guess, you know, Brene Brown would say that there is no empathy without boundaries. Yeah, I would. I, I love Brene Brown. I would 
I wouldn't be so strong as that mm -hmm. in the way that I that I talk about it. There, of course, if you're an empath, there's always empathy, right. but there's no sustainability of empathy without uh -huh. boundaries. I would just add a little bit of a tweak to to how she talks about it. So tell me, how did your empathy, your boundless empathy, how did you come to understand that empathy without boundaries was a curse? Did it take a toll on you emotionally? Did you find you were less effective without boundaries? It's way more than less effective. It's completely depleted. And it has an effect physically on the body and the, and the mental health. Tell me how. Well, when someone is suffering and when you're an empath, there's kind of a dissolution of, of boundaries between yourself and the other. So you're saying that you actually feel what the other person is feeling? Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a complete, it's almost like an overload of, of whatever the person is feeling. It, it, like, it, for instance, if someone is suffering because they're in pain, I will start feeling pain in that part of my body. Come on. That's, that's been the reality for me since I was a little kid. When is the first time you remember feeling that way? I'm sure that there are people listening who have felt that way. I personally consider myself intellectually and spiritually empathetic, but I've never had that experience. When I was 12. What happened? A woman, a girl, not a woman, a girl in my gym class told me that she was sexually abused. And I had, since I was very young, people would confide and confess things to me. And when I was very, very young, so it, it was almost inappropriate sometimes what people would confess to me. Just because I think people can sense when they're when they're dealing with the energy of an empath. Uh -huh. And so I was 12 years old. It was in Montreal in my gym class. And a, a young woman told me that she was being sexually abused by a relative. Good heavens. And I still feel my body going completely cold. And I remember hugging her. I didn't even know her well. I remember her first name, but I, I didn't know her well. And... Um, my body just went completely cold. And then I started feeling numb. And I was able to convince her to talk to the guidance counselor with me. So we went to the guidance counselor together. I don't remember what happened next because I also have the power to block things out. No kidding. You and have I, to. I think you have to. But that was the first experience that I couldn't name at the time. And I didn't intellectualize it at the time. I was only a little kid. Give me an example closer to now where you might, for example carry the pain or the emotion. Does an empath also carry the joy of someone else? A hundred percent. So give me an example of what that would feel like. Well, I'm brought to tears almost daily by, by other people's joy. Like, because I've struggled so much with having a child, when I see someone else having a child and I know the person struggled, it's, it fills me with like an indescribable sense of joy. I, um, what about your children's struggles? You now have a beautiful little girl as well. Your son is moving into the age where he's going to start setting boundaries the way a three-year-old can um, with a lot of no and a lot of defiance, which is natural and normal to their development and their separation, certainly. When he's in pain, are you able to separate enough to do the parenting that you need to do, or do you find yourself drawn into his pain as well? I'm definitely drawn in, but what I find fascinating about Samuel is that 
I already see that he's an empath too. And I, I carried Sam for the whole time that I was doing the empathy experiment. You carried him, you mean in utero? In utero. Right. So I was, just getting back to that experiment that I did, it was a 365-day experiment. Tell me more. And every day, except for Shabbat, so six days a week for an entire year, I posted a black and white photograph, a portrait, and I wrote a vignette, a story, about someone transforming the world through empathy. And the empathy could have been a large act or a very small act. It could have been local or global a human, an animal, or even something in nature. Hmm. And my goal was to engender an empathy effect in the world. And I posted at 8 a.m. every morning. And as anyone who's listening who's a content creator can attest to, that's a huge undertaking. I'll say a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure. And it's interesting because I actually conceived of the idea for the empathy effect in 2010, and I launched it in 2015. And it was one of those ideas that I was incubating almost like a child for five years before it came to fruition. And because it was at the forefront of my mind for so long, I used to talk about it to people. And when I spoke about it to people, sometimes I would talk to people who were looking for something to do, and they would say, well, do you mind if I do that project? That's very interesting. And what did you say? No, that's my baby. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because there's a part of me that thinks this is a universal message. And if everybody was doing an empathy effect, if the entire Facebook universe chose to spend every day instead of posting nonsense, some act of empathy, why would that matter? I can't even tell you how much it would matter. It completely changes the way you perceive reality. And it changes your life as well. No, I don't mean why would that matter. Why would it matter if someone else took your idea? Be sure not to miss part two of this compelling interview with Kim Smiley. And thank you for joining the Pashmina Podcast. When women empower one another, we ignite a force that can change the world. Unlock your power today. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Momentum Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a Momentum Podcast. For unlimited inspiration, wisdom, and empowerment, Visit MomentumUnlimited.org.